Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, where we are often very amused or bemused. Either way, we're always having fun. Today we have Walida, Zoe, Laura, and Helen. Woohoo! Um, we have a pretty cool guest today. We are talking to Lida Gold from, <laughs> from Hip Leftist Magazine Current Affairs, which I read and whose podcast I listen to. It's very good. One podcast to another. Yay! Yeah. Um, hey, thank you. <laughs> Lida writes about culture and politics and is uh, a co-author for a very amusing book called The Big Book of Amusements. Um, some of her articles in the magazine, uh, Current Affairs, include discussions about um, weaponization of anti-Semitism, Star Trek and socialism, and oh, you better believe we're going to talk some TNG and and uh, Deep Space Nine. Yeah, um, And Discovery. <laughs> yes. Um, she has a quiz, a hilarious quiz, uh, which I recommend you all take about how angry your feminism is. Um, she has uh, something called a centrist guide to history. That is hilarious. And to borrow from the book description, <clears throat> the current affairs big book of amusements is an activity book for discerning adults. It collects our favorite frivolities from the current affairs archives, along with several never before seen bonus amusements. It will tickle your friends, suppress your despair, and undermine your society's most cherished values. Take it on a plane, take it to the beach, keep one in your cell. It'll help you keep a big goofy grin on your face while everyone else frowns and moans. Dark times? Climate catastrophe? Techno-feudalistic dystopia? No problem. Nothing's going to phase you. You won't give up the struggle. You've got the big book of amusements. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, that sounds great. Everyone should buy it. That's fucking rude. Lida, why don't you tell us a little about yourself and how you approach writing about culture and politics for current affairs and how you approach writing this amazing book? Yeah, so, uh, you know, current affairs is, of course, a magazine of culture and politics. And there's a lot of very serious stuff in our magazine. Uh, you know, Brianna Rank's writing about immigration. Nathan's doing these really amazing tech takedowns of these, you know, terrible, uh, famous men who are, you know, destroying society, like Jordan Peterson. Um, and I tend to do the funnier, lighter stuff, uh, you know, and I do these amusements. Um, but a lot of it is born out of anger. I write a lot from anger. And, like, the anti-Semitism quiz, that was just, like, me being really, really mad about the way people were weaponizing anti-Semitism. And, you know, Chelsea Clinton was somehow the victim of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. That was real special. So um, a lot of the time it helps me to just, like, relieve, like, how upset I'm, and stressed I'm feeling if I can find a way to make it funny. And find a way to make it, like, it make other people laugh and make other people, like, find a way to, to talk about what's going on in a way that just doesn't make them want to just completely kill themselves. So with, yeah. <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the book, we thought, you know, we, we have the amusements appear in the magazine and they appear, you know, usually after an article, you know, between articles and they're like interstitial bits just floating around. Uh, but we thought, why don't we put what we have into a book and, you know, people can just like, you know, have that perpetual state of like being like, you know, having their anger relieved by going all the way through it. And so it's, it's all stuff from what we published before and some brand new things exclusive to the book itself. 
Yeah, it is very cathartic to um, laugh at something that would otherwise make you extremely angry. Um, <clears throat> the Chelsea Clinton one is a great example because, yeah, like the the circle of protection that formed around her after two young women approached her. I mean, you know, when when you mm. speak truth to power, like that's what it looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 that young woman was actually very reserved. I would have been way more angry if I saw a Clinton anywhere near me. Um, <laughs> being from Iraq, you know, like for me, it's like, um, but yeah, she, uh, it, it's really interesting to me, like. Yeah, she she was literally speaking truth to power, which was right there. And she was a swarm of attackers on the young woman mm-hmm. and a swarm of like a protective wall against Chelsea Clinton. So and yeah, it's enraging to see that. To, so to read something that makes you laugh about something that otherwise makes you so angry is extremely cathartic. Um, and the big book of amusements is is basically that laughing at all the absurd things in our culture from Jordan Peterson to neoliberalism. Um and to just sort of get it out that way, um, <clears throat> it's got amusing charts, it's got quizzes and puzzles, riddles. Uh, it's also just very pretty. Like it's a very beautiful, colorful book that you kind of want out on display. And it, it, it is like something that if you see it, you kind of want to pick it up and and go through it. Um, how long? It, it's, it's quite big. It's got a lot of stuff in there. I haven't actually managed to go through every single thing. I've gone through most of it. I know Kellen has read every single page and word of this. Um, <laughs> um, how long How long did it take you all to, to put this together? Um, a while. It was, it was quite a lot of work. Um, you know, the magazine has been running for a couple of years. So putting everything together and, and you know, collecting it, organizing it, because part of it was just, you know, putting it in a flow that made sense. Um, a lot, all the graphic design is Nathan's pretty much. We have really, really talented artists. So the illustrations are by our incredibly talented, um, astonishingly cool people who, who do art for us. Um, but, but Nathan did all the graphic design and the layout of the whole book. Yeah, it, it took a while. It was, it was very difficult, actually. Turns out, uh, writing a book is hard. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but it's, it, I'm really, we're really, really happy with how it turned out. I think it's really fun. Um, I think it, it, the people who have it, it brings them a lot of joy and that was the intention. So I'm glad it's working for people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the things that we wanted to do was just sort of talk through with you some of our favorite parts of the book. Um, Mm -hmm. obviously our readers probably don't have it or listeners, your future readers, if they're not already, <laughs> our listeners, don't have it in front of them. Um, and I thought, because it's not it's not like a normal book. It's not like mm-hmm. other books, you know. Um, it's a cool book. Uh, and <laughs> it's a cool book, not a regular book. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, it, there's so much going on. Um, I thought it would be maybe helpful to sort of walk through some of that stuff that's happening. So I do want to preface what I'm about to say with the fact that I have a problem, which Walida <laughs> alluded to, which is that if I'm presented with text, I absolutely have to read all of it because I, <laughs> I cannot bear to think that I've missed anything. Um, so nobody can take me to a museum because like even just like an art museum, I'll have to spend two hours in one room learning everything I can about like the eight paintings in front of me. Um, so anyway... I say all of that because I want to assure everybody, I read literally every word in this book and there is a ton <laughs> of like tiny ass font. <laughs> I just want to yeah. confirm not to pile on Kellen, but I'm the <laughs> exact opposite. Cause I'm like a chronic skimmer of everything, but I got 
Kellen passed the book off to me. So we met up at a bar and like you could just see the look in her eyes that she had just definitely read every single like <laughs> tiny, tiny <laughs> font. She was like, there's so much in here to read. <laughs> It's wonderful if you're if you're a person that is I mean, maybe it's a nightmare if you're like really into thoroughness like I am or maybe it's a dream come true. So know yourself and approach it that way. Um, But I was going to say sort of like in my my favorite page, probably in the whole book, which is where this very tiny font comes in, um, was this beautiful, brightly colored quiz uh, that said, can you match these U.S. crimes to the countries they were perpetrated against? Um, (laughs) And there's this like grinning U.S. map with like Mickey Mouse gloves waiting, waving at, at the reader and saying, howdy, friend, I'm Empy, the happy face of U.S. Empire. Whatever you do, <laughs> don't make me upset. Um, That's such a good Mickey voice. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. That is exactly how I imagined Empy, uh, you know, speaking to me as I looked upon with horror upon uh, what he had wrought in the world. Um, so he surrounded this this map by 20 paragraphs in again this absolutely tiny print detailing some of the like absolutely horrible shit america has pulled all over the world and then you're supposed to match this stuff with these like images of the 20 nations on the next page and it's like the it's all in like blues and pinks like very pretty um and i'm zooming in on this particular section to talk about because i think it's really like representative of the book as a whole which is very visually pleasing the bright colors the like 1950s magazine aesthetic but also like totally imbued with irony um from just the premise of turning u.s imperialism into a game and then even the the sort of aesthetic way that the game itself is presented but it, and it's also chock full of information like i study u.s history for a living and there's at least one coup in there that I had never heard about. Um, I guess I, I knew, you know, 19 out of 20. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. I was like, this is not something I even knew I was going to be learning about going into this. Um, and that was really, really cool. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. You know, part of it is, the point of this book is, you know, people can get out their anger by, you know, like, finding a way to laugh at it. But also, the other reaction to stuff like this that is really hard to to talk about and to deal with is to pretend, you know, just to forget about it or to ignore it or to pretend it's not there. And a quiz like that, yeah, it's funny, but it also makes you like it, it, it like it, you learn these atrocities. It actually makes you address them and think about them and not get into this mindset where you're pretending that the U.S. doesn't do things like this. So that's like, it's like a learning is fun kind of thing, but it really, <laughs> it, it is effective in that way. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Using um, the same tricks that you would use to like trick a, a kindergartner into doing their math homework. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. Like, what here's it. a friendly character encouraging you to do your addition. Here's Empy <laughs> reminding you of all the terrible things the United States has done. Yep. Well, how many drones? Let's see, you have three people to kill and you have four drones. So, how many bombs <laughs> would you have? To- oh my Is that God. the new math? <laughs> Is that the new math I keep hearing? That's about? the new math. Yeah. Oh, well, it's preparing people for their careers. You know. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me let me take our listeners on a journey through yes. this book and talk about a few of the, a few of my favorite ones. Um, you redo the game Clue. Mm-hmm. Um, where all the victims that we have to find who their killers are, all the victims are dead billionaires, which, I, I mean, why wasn't that the original version of Clue? That's <laughs> hilarious. 
Um, <clears throat> so it's the same, like you can literally play this game. Like you can actually play it. There's like a little board cut out mm-hmm. stuff, uh, which, which a lot of games in here are like that. You can actually like, you can actually play them, but it's not just read this and laugh. They're playable games. Um, the, uh, so, the advice about sex positions for conceiving an employable child. <laughs> That's amazing. the one that makes it not appropriate for children. Yes. <laughs> Everything else in there is like, you know, a little risque, probably appropriate that one. No. <laughs> and that is one of mine. Yeah, that's the one you skip over when you're showing your children about all the war crimes. (laughs) There are also fake ads in here. Like, they look like real ads, but they're obviously fake ads. And they're very pretty, and they're, like, well done. And there is one for – there is an ad for a libertarian gynecologist named Dr. Ron Paul, um, which, yeah, you kind of forget that he's a gynecologist. I forget that he's a gynecologist. I forget that he's a doctor. Uh, It's crazy. Imagine having him as your doctor. I don't even – Ugh. Yeah, gross. Ew. I know. <laughs> like, he tell you your pussy has a right to bear arms, but. Ah. Ah. <laughs> yeah, um, there is a choose your own adventure game for trolling the alt right, uh, which is very beautiful to look at. It spreads over two pages, and I haven't played it all yet, but I, I really want to. Um, the Adventures of Leo the Libertarian Lion. I love making fun of libertarians so much because it's so easy. It's so easy. (laughs) Yeah, it's so easy. Um, Take a journey through Systemic, the Society for Young Sensible Technocrats Engaging in Meritocratic Interdisciplinary Centrism. It took me a really long time to, because I had the word systemic, and it took me a really long time to make it work as an acronym, just like the plug in the right words. That's why it's like an ugly mess, is it's it was a pain in the ass to do. That's like a dystopian sort of future thing where, like, you have, like, a tour guide that takes you through the dystopian future of the world, and you kind of see what it looks like when everything on the planet is privatized and made for war. It's it's really, it's really great. These are some of my favorite ones to to go through. Yeah, I was going to go through some of my favorite parts of the book as well. Um, And as I alluded to, I'm a big skimmer of things, mostly because I'm a very slow reader. So I get frustrated, um, which is why growing up, I was really into like Highlights magazine. And then as a teenager, like Seventeen and Cosmo, especially like the quizzes and like not even really reading the articles. I like just like the fun parts. Um, So this book is basically just a compilation of all of those things, but yes. also um, like geared towards adults and obviously politically driven. Um, so it was very up my alley. Um, I really like, and there's a lot of things that like just felt familiar, but uh, like grown up, um, like the Jeremy Corbyn like dress doll. It's one of those like paper dolls where you can like <laughs> yes. cut out different outfits for him. And I used to have this like teddy bear one that I played with. I bet but he was, was dressed pretty similarly better. to Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> For, honestly, the bear had like little suits and stuff, so he kind of was little paperboy hat, <laughs> little jumpers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we'll have to do uh, Corbyn's hot son next. Uh, yeah, ah. with <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there were um, the political action horoscopes, which are really fun. And um, while Lita mentioned the Clue game and like some of the board games, I really liked the Socialist Monopoly game. That was um, fun. Yeah, which has, like, the go space says collect universal base income and go. And then the parking is always free parking. And there's the clean and efficient high-speed rail. 
Um, so I really wanted to be able to like play all the games, which I guess you kind of can, but I wanted them to be like full size <laughs> board games. Yeah. You know, it, it, to <laughs> actually make a board game is like expensive and difficult, but like maybe we should just do it because, yeah. uh, you know, we have like the, the concepts, you know, we'll yeah. do like a Kickstarter or something. I would definitely yeah. Kickstarter any of yeah. those games. It would yeah, be awesome. so fun. We'll <laughs> our own line of socialist board games. That would be uh, propaganda, so. propaganda through games. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How did you end up making quizzes and games like this? What was, did that, was that sort of like an organic development or what was the genesis of like this particular political artistic expression? Um, really random, actually. Um, how I got involved in current affairs in the first place is uh, one day I sat down and I wrote this silly play making fun of the Elon Musk and a couple other famous Silicon Valley people. I think that's in the book. That's the Silicon Princes one. Is that in there? I think we put it in. Um, so. I can't remember if it's in there or not. Anyway, that was the first thing <laughs> I wrote for them. But it was just like this really silly play and making fun of famous people. And like, I just had it and I was like, okay, like this is fun, but like nobody's ever going to publish it. And then Current Affairs called for submissions soon after. And I was like, oh, these guys might be crazy enough to publish this. <laughs> and they were. And so, and so they asked you if you ever want to write any more amusements for us, let us know. And it turns out that like, it, this wasn't anything I'd really like expected to be doing, but like mm. I, it is a really like a lot of of my anger and a lot of the ideas I have actually make sense if I can be like, okay, this idea, this thing that I'm mad about is a quiz. This thing is a board game. And like sometimes I have to like play around like, is it this format? Is it that format? And then like when I find the right format, I'm like, okay, now I can be mad about this in a way that's fun. And I just have to like stick it, you know, just stick it with whatever the whatever the right medium is, and uh, then it all works out. How do you, maybe this is like a very esoteric question that you just know and it's difficult to answer, but um, mm -hmm. so how do you decide on the format? Like what makes for a good quiz versus a good board game? Um, I think just play around with what feels right until mm. I arrive on the thing that, you know, sometimes, and, and then if the lines start suggesting themselves organically, then I know I'm in the right spot. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, there's one, we're doing um, an upcoming amusement for the, the new issue. Um, it's going to be on race versus class, and I'm actually like debating between a couple formats right now because I think a quiz could be funny, but maybe a flowchart would be better. You know, mm. something like like the choose your own adventure game that might be more fun. Mm -hmm. So we might just play around, see what works, and then like what is the funniest form? What is the one that feel you know, if something kind of feels easy to write, that's usually like a good sign that it's it's working well. Mm -hmm. That you know it's flowing well. Yeah. So um yeah, these I mean it's really fun writing these amusements. I have a really great time. Sometimes they're like a little too dark and I have to like take a feelings walk. <laughs> <laughs> there's a the prosecutorial mad libs that's in there that oh one, yeah that one was rough i felt really bad and weird yeah that one is like the, the it's from the point of view if you are a a prosecutor who has to justify the shooting of an innocent black person mm. and it is yeah and it's i mean it's like you know it's, it's a pointed critique and it was like i think it's a good thing that we had in there but it was like very difficult to write and i feel really bad and weird about it yeah that makes sense. There there are also some things in there that are like, you know, not dark, like the the Jeremy Corbyn paper doll that Zoe mentioned. Um, I really liked a lot of the advertisements were very funny. My favorite one, this literally like I was laughing out loud looking at this, was um, Calhoun the musical, which um, <laughs> it promised this like Hamilton style reimagining of, um, for those of you who are not familiar, South Carolina fire eater pro-slavery politician John C. Calhoun um and he is like the scariest person like physically 
visually I think I've ever seen. He looks like the the what I imagine the portrait and the portrait of Dorian Gray looked like. Um, <laughs> just like hollow eyes, terrifying. Oh um, it's like if if you took Elizabeth Holmes and like her big blue eyes that don't blink, but then like reduced her face to like a skeletal, <laughs> just like drawn out old man with crazy hair. Oh my just been, god, like, Kellen. <laughs> This is what John C. Cal- I've thought a lot about John C. Cal- I mean, I can tell. Like, this is some real details right now. Yes. Well, if you don't have the book, you have to visualize it with me. Yes. So yeah. I, I like personally appreciate that not having a copy of it. So yes. So you got it. This is for you, Laura. Thank you. Um, so you have this picture of John C. Calhoun, just like the bust of John C. Calhoun as the top point of the Hamilton star instead of like the dude doing the disco. Um, and the text tells us that Lynn Manuel Miranda is back to show us the life of this Haitian immigrant who is just seeking the American dream, which was just like chef's kiss emoji, like so good. An unbelievably biting critique of the way that Hamilton took these like black and brown actors with whitewashed history and it simplified the issue of slavery. And like, I I could go on forever about like how apt this ad was, but it was so beautiful (laughs) and so funny. And I literally laughed out loud. but there's there's also like another very weird ad for a teen magazine that's all about reminding middle schoolers of like the inevitability of death. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part was this like little picture of Hayden Panettiere next to the words "She shall be forgotten like the rest someday." Um, also there's like that. Yeah, there's the Jonas Brothers on it. Like this yeah. looks like the magazine covers that I read uh, in like middle school. Um, and I'm going to confess this, that I have seen the Jonas Brothers live, um, in 2008. Um, so yeah, I felt very connected to that cover. (laughs) Yeah. I could see like young Zoe being very into like a, like morbid Jonas Brothers magazine type Uh, deal. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. (laughs) There's, I mean, so many, yeah. Another thing that I, again, literally laughed out loud about was there's a game and again, a playable game. Uh, where you every you get to pick a character um, like an oil CEO or a literal Nazi or a bootstrapping black guy and then play against other people to uh, get to the center of the board, which is the GOP presidential nomination. Um, <laughs> the game board is very thorough and there's like different paths for each person. Super well thought out. And I know because, as I mentioned, I read literally all of the text. Amazing. This book is so good, people. And if you don't have it, you need to buy it. Yes, Agreed. yes, buy, buy the book. <laughs> um, if you're curious as you're going through it, who wrote what? Because I wrote maybe 60 to 70% of it, but not all of it, because a lot of stuff was written before I, I showed up on this, uh, uh, to current affairs. The really weird shit, like the the teen the teen mag with, with Hayden Panettiere, that's that's Nathan. The really <laughs> surreal shit. All this, the very surreal weird things are Nathan. Like, the really dark mean things are me. The really... <laughs> Um, Lida, did you did you write the the quiz for Can You Be a New York Times op-ed columnist? Yes, that is <laughs> yes. one of the questions. Is is are you friends with any Nazis? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's another quiz in there, the uh, the judges quiz, and that was written by Brianna Renix and Orin Nimney, who are both lawyers and are very angry with judges because nice. they are you know trying to defend immigration cases. So that's a that's a scorching hot one. That's one I couldn't have written because it's, you know, it takes a lot of knowledge of, of working with judges in the legal profession to do it. But that is a, that is a really good one. That's one of my favorite ones in there, actually. It's brutal. Mm. <laughs> I love it. 
Um, okay, so <clears throat> let's talk about something serious for a second. Okay. Uh, Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can the Star Trek future happen without socialism? Um, I would say absolutely not. Uh, there's a, a, I wrote an article about uh, Star Trek and Utopia. Um, I was specifically discussing the first season of Discovery, which I had a lot of problems with, this Discovery being the new Star Trek show. Because I think it really got away from its socialist roots, and it was really just more of like a shoot 'em up actiony thing, and it was it was silly, and and ultimately like undid a lot of the storytelling that they had done before to really establish a socialist story. And Star Trek is really unique in that it's one of the few p- bits of pop culture in general, not just pop culture, science fiction, where you actually you actually have socialism, and like that's part of the storytelling, and that just essential to what is going on and a lot of what flows in the story flows from that essential premise of that you know it's a post-scarcity society and people get along and human beings have evolved into being really really nice um so yeah i would say that you cannot have it you cannot have uh star trek without the socialism it's not star trek it's it's kind of something else Mm. agreed you're right it can't be because because i mean the whole premise of of the federal you know the Federation is, for people who don't watch Star Trek, Space UN, basically, mm-hmm. uh, the UN of space. And the Starship Enterprise, I mean, they're going through, from galaxy to galaxy for knowledge, right? They're documenting the galaxy. They're going through and, and visiting other planets and finding other peoples, not to exploit the natural resources they find or to enslave the local population for their labor, but just to learn about them and just to figure out who is who discovers warp. Anyone who discovers warp speed or gets to a point where they're going to start traveling the stars, they get a visit from somebody in the Federation. Like that's that generally that's how it goes in this world. And it, it seems to it seems like we're post we're post sexism. Mm-hmm. We're post we're, we're a post class society. Science is science for science's sake and no other reason. Um and now we have uh, Discovery, which you're right. I've only watched the first season of it, so mm-hmm. it is a it's way more militaristic. And now we're at war, and mm-hmm. and we're fighting other, I don't know, we're, we're fighting someone else, and and it's very different from the Star Trek that we've watched. Um, but I think you're right. I think I think it's it's impossible to get to a point of where Star Trek takes us without without a post-scarcity society it just can't happen everyone's needs are met and and uh there's that one episode in t in the next generation where they find these humans sort of floating around in space that are i don't know i think 200 years old or something Mm -hmm. they're from basically the 20th century and one of the guys that they extract from one of these pods that kept these people alive from whatever spaceship they were like ejected from um was a capitalist Mm-hmm. And he, the, the episode is spent, like, they're trying to explain to him, like, there's nothing left for you to exploit. There's no exploitation needed. You, you're good. We're going to take you back to Earth, and you're just going to live a life. Like, your needs will be met. You'll have housing. Um, just, we do, we learn for learning's sake. Knowledge is for knowledge's sake only. And this guy couldn't wrap his head around, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, he just couldn't get it through his thick skull. <laughs> Yeah, one of the uh, one of the ways that Star Trek works is that the humans have changed. Humans are no longer interested in these things, and a lot of the the we you know the the aggression and the acquisitiveness and 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 the weirdness of being um, 
a human, as we understand being a human, gets sort of offloaded onto other alien species. One of my favorite, um, Deep Space Nine is my favorite series. And one of the reasons I love it so much is they um, they introduce the Ferengi, and the Ferengi are technically introduced in, in TNG, but they're kind of stupid and don't really make sense. They really kind of figure them out for Deep Space Nine, and what they are is they are a, an arch-capitalist species. They're not part of the Federation. They have their own little corner of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And they're really, they're played for comic relief. And it's actually really, really funny to see, like, the, you know, the desperate strive to acquire things, you know, next to these, like, very, like, benign, ch- chill humans who, like, still interact with the Ferengi in mostly positive ways. Um, but there's, there's like, a great union episode, um, which is just it, uh, uh, where the, the staff of a, of a Ferengi bar unionize. And it's, you know, they, they quote Eugene Debs, and it's, it's just hilarious, it's fun, and it's just, it shows how ridiculous capitalism is, and it's, you know, a future where capitalism survives, but in this tiny pocket of the galaxy as a joke. Yes, yeah. and speaking as the, speaking about the Ferengi uh, as the capitalists uh, of mm-hmm. Star Trek, I once, when I was first watching uh, TNG, I had the thought in my mind, how did the Klingons and the Ferengi get warp speed? Mm-hmm. And how did the Klingons get cloaking uh, technology? Because mm-hmm. what the hell? They don't. They're a warrior race. They're not scientists. Mm-hmm. And the Ferengi are also not scientists. So how did they get this? So I actually went down an internet hole and realized. And I don't know if this is canonical or just something that like fans have discovered in the uh-huh. deep, like whatever like archives of Star Trek. But the Ferengi bought it. Mm-hmm. They bought warp technology. <laughs> Seems right. And the Klingons stole it. From a Romulan ship that they that they destroyed, like they beat some Rom in some Romulans in a fight, and they stole all this technology. So that's just FYI for you, fans out there. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. (laughs) I mean, I was curious. I was like, how did they get warped? I don't get it. Yeah. So I'm gonna go to bat for Discovery a little bit, um, which I've been watching, Um, and. I mean, there's a few things that I do really like about it. One, the (laughs) basic premise is that the universe is run on, like, the mushroom drive. Um, And maybe it's just because I'm a fan of psychedelics, but (laughs) that really speaks to me. Um, (laughs) Also, I think, like, this idea of that a better world's possible is, like, very present. um, Not necessarily specific to Discovery, but in Star Trek in general. Um, But to give away a spoiler, in the first season, when I actually think the first season started to, like, grab my attention more, because in the beginning I wasn't that into it, but was when they end up in the parallel universe. Um, And so the universe they end up in is, like, this very fascist, like, militarized kind of universe. Um, And then they're coming from, like, what is in this one more militarized because they're at war, but was still the, like, kind of, you know, UN-run um place and so when like they get into the fascist universe i was like oh like we have to get into the better universe like i think we're in the bad no i just said i think we have to i said how do we get to the other universe and um my boyfriend because men can't help but explain things was like (laughs) oh i think we're in the bad universe (laughs) yes thank you for explaining that one um but I think there's also this element that I really like, which is 
Like, it's obviously not a superhero show because they don't have superpowers, but the way they have this advanced technology almost feels like powers because they're able to do things that we're not able to do. Um, And I kind of get similar feelings from it as I do from, like, watching superheroes and being like, I want these powers, then we could just, like, make everything better. (laughs) Yeah, well, so that's one of the big questions in Star Trek that comes up again and again, and I wish Discovery played with more because it's a hard question, is... So that they have the prime directive, which means that you can't interfere with a pre-warp society. You can't contact them. You can't, if you see that there's oppression going on, you can't do anything about it. You have to wait until they sort of, you know, you you can't meddle in their internal affairs. They have to kind of come to you and sort of join the the larger society of, of uh, the galaxy. Um, and it raises some really hard questions, and it's really tough. Um, it, because, you know, is it... Should you be going around, if you have these powers, should you be going around trying to save people? Or will that just, you know, will meddling in the internal affairs of a, of a, of a planet, a country, I almost said by accident, kind of on purpose, um, <laughs> will that create problems? Because it tends to actually create problems, even if you believe that your intentions are noble. Yep. And yeah, yeah it's, um, it's really messy. Another plug I will make for Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine also has a war plot line. But it works for me a lot better than Discovery. One, because they introduced it a lot later in the story. So you see the the buildup of it. Um, And two, because it's, you sort of see how they they actually show you rather than just having um, the utopia fall apart. They show that like, it is hard to maintain utopia when these things happen. It's possible, but it is harder. It is more of a challenge. Yeah, Um, I do. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I was just going to add on to what you were saying about um, the like, not being able to interfere that I do think that speaks a lot to like an anti-imperialism, which is another theme that I think um, like runs through the show pretty well. Mm-hmm. And the third thing I really like about that war plot line is the, the enemy they are fighting is an imperialist power. So one of the big issues I had with discovery is they get went up against the Klingons and the Klingons seemed all they really want is they seem to be afraid of Federation imperialism and the Federation is, is quickly saying that no we're not imperialists we totally aren't but there's something about that framing that makes me really nervous because when they're saying we want to maintain our culture and we're gonna do, we don't want you to invade I'm like oh that sounds very sympathetic I uh, you know I think you might be onto something there um, so it, you kind of wonder what that war looked like from the Klingons point of view because it didn't it didn't quite make sense um, going up against an, an imperialist power is a more satisfying storyline for me. And I think is more in, within the ethos yeah. of Trek rather than yeah. trying to reassure this, you know, maybe they are kind of a warrior species, but we're trying to reassure them like, no, 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 we totally want peace and, and stuff. Right. You yeah. empathize. I, I think that's true. I mean, there was some, a little bit of that also in uh, TNG where the, I mean, the Klingons are always sort of side-eyeing the Federation for this mm-hmm. reason. And I'm like, I mean, I get it. I totally get it. The fr- yeah. I mean, these like uh, the Starfleet and Romulans, uh, you know, these other alien species, the Klingons are way more technologically advanced than the Klingons. Um, they've, they've formed uh, a federation Right. And it's like, well, yeah, I, why wouldn't you look at them as a threat mm-hmm. to your own like independence and your own uh, planet and your own species? Mm-hmm. Of course you would. Yeah, that's a reasonable thing. And and the, the Klingons like it, it was it was a weird choice in Discovery because they've been so established throughout the history of Star Trek. And they've changed a lot from the original series to like next gen. But they they have a complex culture. They're one of their favorite fan culture for a reason. 
uh, and there was really reduced in discovery into like really kind of a parody and like a sort of set of stereotypes about um, colonized people. They're, you know, they're, suddenly they're cannibals. Suddenly, they're you know, they're very savage rather than just being like war. You know, noble warriors. It's a totally different ball game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing you brought up wanting to talk about, and that I know you've been writing about, is um, feminism and sci-fi which um, is definitely my jam. Uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but should surprise no one. Um, what I really like in sci-fi, I like that you can explore like utopian thought, and specifically I like um, post-man utopias, yeah. um, <laughs> where you get to imagine what if men didn't exist anymore, and uh, that really gets me going. Um, I just got the uh, second volume of Bitch Planet, which I really like, um, Why the Last Man I really enjoyed, like mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Um, so just wondering, like, what are some of the connections that you've been finding with, like, your research into feminism and sci-fi? I, I am in the process of writing an article about feminist utopias, including nice. the ones with no men in them. Um, yes! Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was, like, an explosion in feminist utopias in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and a lot of them were worlds where men didn't exist, and it was positing you know, what would it be like, you know, could we organize a society, a better society, if men either didn't exist or were, sub, you know, sublimated in some way to women. And a lot of it rests on these very 19th century ideas that women are kinder, women are nicer, uh, women are more moral. So it's really, so I mean, they're, they're very interesting works. I don't know if they really like answer a question in a really satisfying way. There are these later um, 70s, there was like a little bit, a little explosion of feminist utopian literature in the 70s. And these are like, I think, more realistic and more interesting. There's a really great one by Marge Piercy called Woman on the Edge of Time, which uh, it's a society where there's still men and women, but their uh, toxic masculinity is over. Um, gender roles are just, you know, you can do whatever you, you know, it's, it's completely up to you. You can do whatever you want. Um, any kind of sexuality expression is totally free and it's really really satisfying and it's a really really lovely story also some really terrifying parts it's like a very it's an oddly paralleled story um i don't want to spoil anything by giving away too much of it out, but i recommend it uh yeah and um yeah and, and why the last man is very good i haven't read the second volume of bitch planet i'm really excited though i'm, I'm gonna go get it yeah, yeah i haven't I've, read it yet but i just got it yeah i bet it's gonna be very useful for my article actually i should really yeah should on really the cover it's on the cover, it says, like, you can't jail the revolution. And then there's, like, a picture that says, like, President Bitch. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cathartic. I love it. Yeah. And um, also, actually, relating that a little bit to um, Book of Amusements in Bitch Planet, one thing I love is they always, in between each section, have, like, those fake ads, mm -hmm. which are always for, like, really funny, like, pads and, like, women's like medicaid it's always like super sexist like parody ads so that actually kind of reminded me of the book yeah yeah it's and and i'm sure that it was written um in the same spirit you know of just like uh, like you, you you imagine something's like imagining something horrible like is a really good way to like clear it from your system and like <laughs> a parody of something that's really gross and then you yeah. read it and you're like yes look at this like gross terrible thing that we're putting up you know to mock yeah, and it's really fun to just be reading a book where, like, women are rebelling, and then it's like, here's a medication for hysteria. Do you suffer <laughs> from a terrible yes. husband? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
<laughs> the, it's so good. It's like brilliantly done. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to, to read it and to incorporate it. I just read this um, novel, which is not a utopia, but I, I love it so, so much. And I'm recommending to like every woman I meet. Um, it's called The Power by Naomi Alderman. Mm, and it, I've read it. it. Oh, you read it? It's so good. It's so good. It's so oh fucking gosh. good. What is yeah. it about? What is it about? <clears throat> so there, the premise is that every woman in the world slowly develops the ability to shoot lightning out of their fingers. Yes. Um, oh, I love that. <laughs> and it's 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 so much fun. It's very it's it's wonderful because on one hand it's very cathartic to read because you just you know these women get to you know beat the shit out of people and yes. it's great to imagine you could do this. But also they the, the, she's does a really good job because the women do end up being oppressors. Mm-hmm. Because actually having more power than other people will make you an oppressor. And yeah. I really, I mean, it doesn't fall into that 19th century trap, which I think is nice. Can't we just uh, look? For like a couple of years, I agree. Let's yeah, just for like a ride minute. it out. Yeah. Just a minute. It, this, <laughs> that was, it was like hard for me. That was like a tough pill for me to swallow with this book because I just kept like wanting there to be like a resolution where like the women were actually better leaders and like <laughs> did <laughs> have a better grasp on all of that. But um, yeah, I was, I, I think, I think it is a good thing that it was done in the way that it's done. And like, I think that like it also just showed a lot of different profiles. Like uh, there's a bunch of different uh, chapters that are about the different characters um and they don't all know each other or anything like that but like are existing in this world that is grappling with this massive shift in in power yeah it's the characters are wonderful they're um they're all very even like the less sympathetic ones you're still very invested in their stories totally yeah it's a it's a really fantastic book yeah my my friend oh sorry go ahead i was gonna say my friend michelle and i Look, matriarchy will be bad. I'm not saying men we want to get rid of. To our male listeners, <laughs> I'm just saying, just let us have this thought game for a second. <laughs> um, my friend Michelle and I obsess over the movie The Wicker Man because yes. <laughs> it's I love about The Wicker Man. A, yeah, it's it's this island where there is a matriarchy and there are men on it, but they're terrified of the women. They don't make eye contact. Women roam this island, I assume, the way men roam the world, freely and unafraid. And it's just, I mean, it's just fun to watch. Like, I know, they're so terrible to the men. They beat them. They Like, they're terrible to them. But just just let me watch it for a couple hours. Just let me, like, live in that world in my mind and just feel that freedom. And then I know, I get it. It's bad. I'll concede it's bad. No, no, no. <laughs> Is this yeah. the movie where Nicolas Cage gets his head trapped in a cage of yes. bees? Yes. Yeah. It is. Okay. That's what I know it from. <laughs> it's Nicolas Cage smash cuts of yelling about bees. But, yes. Um, it's definitely that movie. <laughs> I'm sure there's more to it than just that. Yeah. The lightning fingers, though, remind me of um, Captain Marvel because I just saw that. Mm-hmm. And I've just been like, since seeing it last week, just like, I just want to be able to like photon blast someone's head off out of my hand. <laughs> But I actually found out, because um, I was just like doing some random research, that the same writer from Bitch Planet is who wrote a lot of the Captain Marvel comics. Yeah, the 2014 run, right? Like, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah the other the character. Yeah, funny funny enough how that, how that comes up. You're both really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I think we're coming up uh, at the end of our hour. 
Um, this has been a very delightful and very fun conversation. I love talking about Star Trek. I'll be honest. I just love it. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Yay, me too. <laughs> I could talk about uh, it all day. Yeah. Um, Lido, why don't you uh, tell our listeners again a little bit about where they can find you on social media and some of the stuff you've got coming out in current affairs and any independent projects you've got coming out. Yeah, so I am on Twitter at Lida underscore gold. Um, I have an Instagram, but I always forget about it. And any cat pictures I put there, I'm also going to be putting on Twitter, so don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I in current affairs uh, all of the time, um, you know, almost all the amusements are mine or I edited them. Um, I'm going to have a new, if I can, you know, if I can finish it in time, I'm going to have the Feminist Utopias piece for the next issue which should be coming out in a month or so. Mm. Um, so I highly recommend checking it out. You should check out our back issues. It's so good. You can subscribe and you get six beautiful issues a year. It's only 60 bucks. It's great. You can get just the digital version, which is less than that. Um, yeah, and I have a, a couple of short stories here and there. Um, there's an anthology called Sirens that I've been in a couple of times because um, I'm very interested in sci-fi fantasy literature for other reasons because I write some of it sometimes. Um, yeah, that um, I think that's, that's it what I have coming up. Um, if you happen to be in New York, there is a um, there's a, a conference called Theorizing the Web, and I'm going to be on a on a panel. Um, that's February. Uh, sorry, sorry, February. Geez, it's Friday, April twelfth. So um, if you're around, it's at the Museum of Moving Image in Queens. It'll be fun, probably. Um, yeah, so uh, you should check that out. Awesome, amazing. Oh, and there's the podcast. You should listen to the podcast. Yes, listen to the podcast. <laughs> Oh yeah, and, and become a Patreon member so that you can hear all the all the culture stuff that you know you, you really do want to hear us yelling about books and movies. Yeah, it's a winner. Hopefully soon there'll be a Kickstarter for some socialist board games. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I really want it to happen. So let me know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we'll see what we can do. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for joining us, and um, like we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk with us. Of course, I had a great time. I love your guys' show. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that's our show. As always, um, you can find us on all of the social media at Season of the Bee. Um, And you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. We have merch on our website. If you have any ideas or things you want to talk to us about, you can reach us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. And I think that's it. Awesome. Have have a silly, adventurous time like the book would like <laughs> you to have. <laughs> Weird words out of my mouth. <laughs> All right, ladies. Thanks right. for another great show. Yay. Okay. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.